Well, let's pray. Father, you are our sure and steady anchor. Father, we, we thank you that in this turbulent world that we live in that is full of uh, sickness and death that's subject to the curse, uh, we have been given the anchor of Jesus Christ, the anchor of our salvation, the anchor of our soul. And I pray that as I, I preach today and we offer up a vision for biblical masculinity and what you call us to be, that we will understand our not only the unworthiness of our task, but also the empowerment given to us by the Spirit and the vision given for us in Christ. Pray that you will help me with this message in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you guys have heard, Iron Man is coming up in 13 days. And so we are going full bore once again. It'll be an epic time of fellowship. And, and do you guys know how many Iron Men we have done? How many this will be? 11. This will be our 11th Iron Men Summit. And uh, one thing about the Iron Men, I think, is, is a great privilege for our church, but it takes a lot of manpower to pull it off. I mean, thousands of manpower. And what's interesting is uh, the women are are really the ones who probably do most of the manpower. Uh, you know, they really back and get behind the men's ministry. And, and sometimes um, it can kind of beg the question, why don't we put that much effort into women's ministry? Right? You, you don't raise your hand, but I'm sure you have thought of it. Uh, and we do try to support the the women's ministry uh, as much as we can, but frankly, the women's ministry doesn't need that much help. It's just true. I mean, you look at uh, who were the last people at the cross? It was the women. Who were the first to be at the tomb? It was the women. Studies have shown that women in general are more spiritually in tune. They have a higher degree of, of commitment to religion, uh, conviction about the truth of Scripture, uh, and they're more likely to, to say religion is the most important part of their lives. Uh, when you look at, uh, for every 100 women of prime marrying age, there's 93 evangelical men, right? It feels like there's three, doesn't it? I'm just looking. But you know what I'm saying? It, it's, uh, when you look at book purchases, women buy 78% of all Christian fiction, 59% of all Christian nonfiction, but men do buy 58% of the Bibles. I suspect gift shopping, but you know, that's just a theory. Now, now why is this the case? Uh, one theory is that women uh, understand their vulnerabilities. And it's easier for them to look outside themselves for, for strength, for support, for protection. Uh, that's just a theory, but I think the fact still does stand that, you know, women are naturally, for whatever reason, more inclined to look to the Lord, and there is a, a shortage of godly men. And that is why, for a strategic purpose, we put a lot of resources into making strong men, because strong men strengthen women. 
men who understand a biblical vision for masculinity are a blessing to women. And one example of this is found in the book of Ruth. We're going to be introduced to a major character today in this saga of redemption and hesed, faithful love. Turn with me to Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll learn the identity of this worthy man. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, just to bring you up to speed, okay, for those of you who are joining us late, uh, Naomi and her husband Elimelech went to Moab in hopes of finding a better life. There was a famine in the land, and when she got there, her husband Elimelech passed away. Then her two sons both married Moabite women, and after 10 years, they passed away. And Naomi basically lost her whole world, and so she goes back to her homeland in Judea, specifically to, to Bethlehem, to try to recover her broken life. And along the way, she tells her daughters-in-law, do not follow me, go back, you have a future, I'm just an old widow, I have nothing for you. And then Ruth says, far be it from me that I should ever leave you. Makes that wonderful confession, right? Your people will be my people, your God will be my God. She basically gives up everything out of a loyal has said love for Naomi. And now she has returned to Bethlehem. She's the talk of the town. And all the townspeople look at Naomi and they're like, Naomi, is, is that you? Yeah, it's me, but call me bitter. And so that's kind of the low point of the, the story. But here, there is a, a turn where God is going to express his hesed, his faithful, loyal love to Naomi through the agency of a worthy man. Now note here it says that he is a, a worthy man. He is a, he is a worthy man. He's not only a relative of Elimelech, which is Naomi's deceased husband, right? And that's going to play a key role in the story later. But he's worthy. Now, the most obvious implication of worthy was this was a consequential man. He was influential. He was a landowner. Uh, he was wealthy. We know that it means that for certain. But as we keep on reading the book of Ruth, we see that worthy has another connotation to it. Uh, it's seen in Ruth 3.11 when Boaz tells Ruth the town assessment of her. He says, all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. It's not because she's rich. It's because she has high character. And as we keep on reading, what we see is that Boaz is a worthy man, not because of just his, uh, um, his material possessions and net worth, but because of his high character and it is shown through his relationship with women. Okay, this is the, the main point I want to get across to you today. A worthy man esteems the worth of women. Let me say that again. A worthy man esteems the worth of women. And as we go through this, we see 
really three ways that he esteems the worth of women. A worthy man, he protects women, right? They're worth dying for. A worthy man provides for women. They're worth sacrificing for. And a worthy man prizes women. If you want to know if a man is worthy, judge him by how he relates to women. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of walk through this passage, okay? And then we're going to circle back and address these three points, okay? So we're going to start in verse 1. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, and, and Ruth the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, this is the, the time of the barley harvest, and before grain trucks and combines, harvesting looked quite a bit different, right? It was a high manpower operation. Now, the first wave was usually done by the men. It was more of the heavy lifting, where they would take, take a, a scythe or a sickle, and they would just basically cut down all of the stalks of barley or wheat. And then they'd kind of rake them into little piles, okay? You know, that's the threshing phase. And then usually a team of women would come behind them and tie them all into loose bundles so that they can transport them to the threshing floor, okay? So they would thresh the grain, bundle the grain, and then there would be some stalks left over, right? When you mow the lawn, there's a reason why you have a weed trimmer, right? You can't get it all. And those little stalks of grain, picking those is called gleaning. And that was something that the Lord commanded the Israelites to don't glean. Leave those stalks there so that the poor can harvest them and, and feed themselves. We see this in Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And we learn from Deuteronomy 24, 9 through 10, that Ruth, as a widow and a foreigner, has permission, a divine right, to glean. Now, what's interesting is look at what Ruth says in verse 2. She says to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She's hoping to go gleaning, and she's hoping that she finds a field that is owned by a man who will show her favor. They say, well, why is that necessary? Right? The Lord commanded it. She doesn't need permission. Israel always followed the law. Right? Especially during the time of the judges. I mean, it's not like they were doing what was right in their own eyes. I'm being facetious, but you gather the larger point, right? This was the wild west of Israel. Nobody was following the law. She knew that if she didn't find the favor of the owner of the field, she would be in big trouble. And so reading on, and she said to her, Naomi said, go, my daughter. Right? Naomi obviously is probably too despondent to do it herself, and so Ruth is going to go out and try to collect enough 
food for the both of them. Verse 3, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now notice the phrase, happened. She happened to come. She by chance came. Uh, it would be translated this way. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she, wouldn't you know it, happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Of this patchwork of all these different fields that she could choose from, the one that she just happened to wander into was the field of Boaz. You, you, you see the sovereign hand of God at work guiding and directing Ruth to be in the right place, and as we will see, the right time. Verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, Lord be with you, and they answered, the Lord bless you. So as she's in the field, Boaz, the owner, happens to be there, and he gives his crew, his hired workers, a traditional greeting, Lord be with you. Then Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Whose young woman is this? Now that might seem odd to modern ears. But in that day and age, a, a, a woman was always known by her relation to her man. The wife had her husband. The daughter had her father. The sister had her brothers. The female servant had her master. The only woman who wasn't spoken for was usually a, a prostitute. And, and as you see especially in, let's say, Genesis, if you do something bad to one of the women, you will answer to the men. I mean, how many men avenged the wrong done to their sisters, right? And so he's asking, whose, whose woman is this? Who does this woman uh, belong to? He doesn't recognize her. This is not somebody that I hire. She's, she's out of place here. And this is where it gets really interesting. Okay, you're going to have to think through this with me. <clears throat> Verse 6. And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is a young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She is a Moabite from Moab. Emphasis on she's an outsider. She's not one of us. She's from that heathen tribe over there, and she's in our field. And she, she said, this is his recollection, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Now, what was her original request? She just wanted to glean in the fields. Remember that threefold process? It's the threshing, the piling, and the bundling. And then you can glean after that. What this foreman says that she wants to do is after the threshing, she wants to just pick up what's been threshed and piled. This would be the equivalent. Let's say a, a poor family shows up at our church and we're having a potluck after church and they, they say, uh, we'd like to bring some home um, you know, to, to, to feed our family. Would that be okay? Of course it would be okay. And, and what would be our default plan. We'll go ahead and all eat, 
okay? And then when we're all done, you can take the leftovers home, right? That, that would be cleaning. But what if they say, well, actually, we brought all these storage containers, and as we go through this line, we would just like to fill up our storage containers. Would that be okay? Such a thing is not done at Flint Hills Bible Church, right? <laughs> um, you know, that's kind of a big ask that you're making, right? That's the equivalent of what the foreman is saying Ruth wants to do. Let me just go through the first run and just go ahead and fill my, my pouch, okay? That is a very audacious statement for Ruth to make. And I think the question is, did Ruth actually say that? That's not what was reported in verse 2, but that's what the foreman says. The same foreman who said, she was a Moabite from Moab. And then in verse 7, and I'm going to read from the NASB translation, because I think it's the better one in this case. Thus she came and has remained from morning until now. And she has been sitting in the house for a little while. And so she's just there. In the NASB, it correctly translated, so there's no sense of her working the fields. The insinuation is she didn't get permission to glean. She is just there, occasionally sitting in the house, as this foreman is not giving her permission to do what she asked to do. He talks about her Moabite status. He makes mention that she's asking for way too much. And in the time of the judges where there's no fear of the Lord, I mean, who knows? I mean, they just had a famine. They want to collect all the grain for themselves. And the backstory, I think, in a, in a large way, is filled in by the specificity of a seven-point plan given by Boaz. He comes here and he gives seven distinct points that are likely a response to how this foreman, who's really a foil to Boaz, was treating Ruth. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter. Listen, my daughter. Do not go to, do not glean in another field, number one, or leave this one. You're going to stay right here. You're not going any place else. You stay here. Three, but keep close to my young women. Four, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. Five, go after them. Now that's interesting. Why is he saying stay close to the young women? Well, when Ruth tells Naomi about this later on in this chapter, listen to what Naomi has to say in, in verse 22. It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Huh. Did he think that his own men would sexually abuse and assault Ruth? Six. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Wow. Wow. He's getting a read on this situation. And seven, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. You're to have full access to the water. Now, this is a possible reconstruction. Ruth shows up. She asks for permission to glean. Well, 
The foreman is not very happy about this plan. They've had a famine. And she's trying to cut in on what rightfully belongs to them. When they pick up that she is a Moabite, and that she is an outsider, and that they have, she has no man to protect her, uh, they decide that, you know what, we're not going to just let her come in and take what rightfully belongs to ours and our people. And so, a little comment here, a little touch there, they're sending her a message. And when Ruth decides to go and get some water for herself, a couple of men stand in front of the water pots and say, you want some water, huh? Tell me, what are you willing to do to get some water? What are you willing to do? And that's when Boaz comes. And he'll have none of this. He'll have none of it. You, Ruth, you stay here. You don't let these men harass you. And then he does something remarkable. And, and this is where we see Ruth's character, that she's not this audacious woman, you know, trying to be forward and get her way. This is how she responds to this. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Ruth knows that in the social hierarchy, she is at the absolute bottom, right? You have the judges, you have the landowners, the leaders of the clans, you have the, the husbands, the fathers. I mean, you go down the list, even the slave men, then you have the women and where they are. But being a foreign woman with no man to speak for you means you are at the bottom of the social hierarchy. And she is flabbergasted by this treatment. Why? Well, I have nothing to offer you. Why are you treating me this way? And this is what he says. Boaz answered her, verse 11, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Remember how everyone was talking about what is this woman doing here? And notice how he makes a mention how you left your father and your mother, your native land, to come to a people you did not know. One of the reasons why Boaz didn't believe the foreman is he heard these stories. He heard about this remarkable young woman who came with Naomi, who was married to, we'll say, a cousin. And he admired her. And then he said this, The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward is given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He recognizes her hesed love, her faithful love, her covenantal love. Hey, I want the Lord to reward you, and I hope you find protection under his wings. And, and Boaz is not going to say, be warm and be filled. I sure hope somebody else does that for you. He wants the privilege of being the means by which the Lord honors this worthy woman. 
And verse 13, then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. She found favor. Remember, that was her hope. I hope I find favor. And here the Lord allows her to find favor in the eyes of a very significant and worthy man. And then it gets even more real in verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some leftovers. Right? She probably didn't pack a lunch. She was probably just standing outside. And Boaz sees her standing by herself and says, Hey, come over here. Come over here. And he doesn't just give her the scraps. He doesn't just give her the leftovers. You come here. You enjoy this meal. In fact, why don't you try this bread with this special wine sauce? It's delicious. I want you to enjoy the full hospitality. And then he goes beyond that and he gives her roasted grain. And then he gives her more than she can eat, knowing, knowing that she'll take it home to Naomi. Notice how Boaz is concerned about Ruth, but also Ruth's mother-in-law, who was looking to provide. And then, verse 15, she rose to glean. Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her to leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Now remember what they said initially is she's trying to like not glean and get more than her fair share. She's trying to glean among these piles, among the bundles. And, and what does Boaz say? Let her do that. Let her do that. And pull some out of the bundles. Let her take as much as she wants. Otherwise, you'll have to deal with me. You can have all you want. And so as we look through this, you see uh, the portrait of a, of a worthy man who demonstrates his worthiness in how he treats Ruth and how he treats Naomi. And from this, we're going to circle back. We're going to look at three elements of a worthy man. Number one, a worthy man protects women. Okay, a worthy man protects women. Now, Julia, my daughter who's at KU, had a chance to take an elective class a physical fitness class. She needed one hour credit, and so she decided to take self-defense for women. She took it seriously. But this is what she learned. These moves that you're learning can buy you some time. But eventually, a man will overpower you. The best self-defense is to make sure that you are not in that situation to begin with. Isn't that right? And that just acknowledges reality. Women are vulnerable to the strength of men. Now we have police protection and other services to prevent that from happening, but can you imagine living in that day and age and the vulnerability that Ruth must have felt? To be in a field, to be harassed, to fear that if she strays from the other women, she might be sexually assaulted. And this was also in the time of the judges where women were not treated well. 
And so when Boaz comes in here, he basically says, this will not happen on my watch. He institutes a sexual harassment policy. He also understood her vulnerability, that she had no man to speak for her. She, by leaving her homeland, left her support network. And if any of you guys are ever familiar with sex trafficking, the reason why sex traffickers traffic women is they want to take them away from their family support network so that they have no one to speak for them, no one to advocate for them, no one to look out for them, and that way they're able to coerce them into prostitution. Right? He understood her vulnerability. And, and notice, what does he say? He says, now listen, my daughter. You don't have a man to speak for you. I will speak for you. He offers protection. Now, I think many men um, will claim to be hypothetical protectors. If a gunman comes into this church, I will throw my body in front of the women. Right? If a burglar comes into my house, I have five automatic weapons for a reason. Right? It's easy to be a hypothetical protector. But you know, protection doesn't just happen in those small moments, right? It's really a continuous calling. And I think there's some obvious ways that you can protect women. Uh, One is you don't stare at them. You don't follow them around. You offer to walk them home. But, But I want to focus on really two elements that make men protectors that, that help women feel safe around them, all right? You want women to feel safe around you, agreed? The first one is you take appropriate initiative. You take appropriate initiative. Notice how Boaz takes initiative with Ruth. He directly, he directly addresses her. He speaks with her. He even welcomes her around the table. Now, we live in a day and age where... Um, Many men, including myself, practice the Billy Graham rule. Do you know the Billy Graham rule? It basically is a commitment that you will not be alone with a woman who's not your kin. Right? And it's a good rule. Right? You're not going to be in a private room with another woman who's not your wife. It's a good rule. But what can often happen uh, when people who practice this is they can be so committed to purity and so wanting to be right in their own minds about women that they unintentionally treat women as sources of temptation instead of sisters in Christ. Does that make sense? When you see a woman, you don't see a person, you see danger. You get nervous around women. You act strange around women. You're like, oh, oh, what am I going to do? Now, ladies, will you be comfortable around that kind of guy? Do you feel safe around that kind of guy? Because he's trying to protect himself from you like you are the threat. I mean, one of the best ways to not objectify women in that way, because that is a form of objectification when you see them as threats, is to have a relationship with them, is to have an appropriate relationship with them, to talk to them, to get to know them, to, to see them as your daughters or your sisters or your mothers. You have appropriate conversations. You take a genuine interest in them. You show them appropriate contact, 
right? Side hugs, right? It's, it's the tradition around here, and that's okay. Now, one thing that you do want to do is to make sure that, that you don't just single out the certain women you treat like sisters, right? If you're only treating one woman as a sister, that says something. Or if you only show the pretty girl's sisterly love, that says something. But notice that Boaz was concerned not just about Ruth. And by the way, we have no idea what Ruth looked like. There is no mention of her being a beautiful woman. We don't know. People assume it. But he was also caring about Naomi as well. He took the initiative. Secondly, not only do you take appropriate initiative, you, you practice impartiality. You are impartial. Boaz didn't buy the line, buy the foreman, that Ruth is an assertive woman who's trying to usurp your authority and try to take over the situation. Now, we are a, a complementarian church. Do you guys know what I mean by that? Uh, you have egalitarian that would say that all men, are, men and women are equal with regard to gender roles, uh, anything that a woman can do, a man can do, anything a man can do, a woman can do. What a complementarian teaches is that God's design for the family is that the men are to lead the family and the women are to follow joyfully, right? So men are to lead, women are to joyfully submit. In the church, the men are to lead. That's why our elder board is all male. Now, this is one of the uh, elements that can be somewhat complicated, okay? Let's say you have a man who is using this biblical teaching of male headship to dominate his wife, to terrorize his wife, to abuse his wife. Often what those men will do is they'll go to a church like ours and they'll try to ingratiate themselves with the leadership of the church. Their goal will be to become best buds with the pastor. Now, why do you think they do that? so that the woman will feel like she can't go to the pastor because he will, by default, take the side of her husband. You see, if the church organizes itself as a good old boys club where leaders instinctively look out for each other and look out for the interest of their friends and their buddies, the women will not feel safe from the men who might be terrorizing them. Am I right? Practice impartiality. And if you do that, then yes, the women will come forward and say, I have some, some problems. And, and the elders will lovingly engage. And admittedly, it's often a very messy situation. It's hard to get to the bottom of it. But worthy men will hear it and address such things in unworthy men. Secondly, a worthy man provides for women. Notice how Boaz doesn't go cheap with Ruth. And there would have been temptations to do so, right? I mean, they just had a 10-year famine. Finally, they have a harvest, and you'd have the mindset that we need to grab all we can because it may not be there next year like it wasn't there last year. But he doesn't go cheap. He understands that God has given him a bounty, he has given him a wealth, and he wants to share it not only with Ruth, this woman of noble character, but also 
her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, he doesn't do this because of just love and concern for Naomi or Ruth. I think his character is such that he understands what he does when he gives to the poor. In Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. He knew that Ruth was never going to give him the grain back. But he gave to her because he has a heart for the weak. He has a heart for the destitute. God loves the widow and the orphan and the foreigner, the people who are the most helpless. And he wants to provide for their needs. This is Paul's call for the wealthy in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set themselves on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up, for the, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, John Wesley once said, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. You know, if God has blessed you with the ability to earn money, then that gives you the ability to provide for others who can't. And that is honestly a form of protection, isn't it? I always tell young men, as you look into the workforce, make it your goal that one day you can be a provider. Before you go into debt to study sociology or music performance or philosophy, Ask yourself, will this allow me to provide for someone? You know, sometimes the sacrifice is working a job that you don't like because it pays the bills so that you can provide for the people you love. Worthy men seek to provide, even at great cost. And that's not to say that women can't work outside the home. But what I am saying is that the heart of a man is to seek to protect the people in his family by trying to provide for their needs. And thirdly, a worthy man prizes women. A worthy man prizes women. Boaz has genuine admiration for Ruth. Now, normally when you hear about a woman having a lot of admirers, what's your assumption about that woman? She must be beautiful. She must have a lot of social competence. You know, she must have kind of a way that just kind of lights up a room, right? Usually when women have admirers, that's what people admire about them. And just a note to young men, when you admire women for only their beauty, you reinforce a worldly concept that true beauty is found in how you look. But note, we have no idea what Ruth looked like. Why did Boaz admire Ruth? Verse 11, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know. Ruth, you, you have done something that I have never done. 
I have never left my family. I've never left my homeland. I've never tried to ingratiate myself to a people who do not know me, who I'm a stranger to, for the sake of someone else. This is genuine admiration. She demonstrated Hesed, faithful covenant love. And he wants to show her honor. Not a condescending honor, but something where you have done nobly. Remember verse 311, you are a worthy woman. Who said that? That was Boaz. He saw her as worthy of admiration and respect. Now, was he saying that because he wanted to get to know her better? Again, his concern was not only for Ruth, but also for Naomi. He wasn't hitting on her at this point. And his esteem of Ruth led him to want to provide for her and protect her. Now, sadly, not all men um, honor women. One of my little podcasts that I listen to is Ask Pastor John. John Piper is a renowned theologian and pastor, and, and he fielded this question that I think kind of captures um, something that is more common than we know. Dear Pastor John, my husband and I have been married for nearly 30 years. He's grown convinced that there is something wrong with me. I'm a Christian and have been since I was 10 years old. He is also convinced that God sees me as subservient to him and in every way. Tonight I asked him if he believes women are subservient to men in creation, and he answered without hesitation, yes. He has also treated me like, a, like he is superior to me in every way. The way he treats me is very hurtful, and I don't think I can continue to go on with this angry, aggressive spirit. When he gets angry with me about anything, he locks me out of the bedroom and out of the house. I literally want to run away. I despise my life. Please help encourage wives who are treated as inferior. Now, naturally, Pastor John gives some very wise and helpful encouragement and comfort to this poor woman. But his short answer is found in 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor, showing her worth to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, weaker vessel doesn't mean that they're weak. Weaker vessel means that they're precious, kind of like, what's more valuable? A big water jug made of two-inch thick material or the fine piece of porcelain where it's really thin and weak? See what I'm saying? The weaker vessel is the precious vessel. They are to esteem, to honor, to believe that they are worth more than you. And sadly, many insecure, narcissistic men will take the teaching that men are to be the head, fuse it with the curse on Eve that her desire will be for her husband and you will rule over her. So you gotta, I got to keep her in her place so that I can occupy God's place. And through a series of comments and, and actions, they try to deconstruct any dignity the woman has 
to make it very clear that I am the only one qualified and capable of leading in this relationship because you can't do it on your own. And there is this revulsion to try to build her up or encourage her to listen to her advice because she might get out of control. Well, if I encourage her, then, then she, she might think she doesn't have to change. If I say, good job, that won't push her to greatness. I mean, when people talk about the problems with the evangelical church and complementarian theology, that action and that attitude gives churches like ours a bad name. It does. And the solution is not to get rid of gender roles. That's biblical. I mean, the solution is to make more men like Boaz, who will use the power that God has given them to esteem and protect the worth of women. That's the solution. And I thank God for the many Boazes that we have in our church. But I think there's one more thing. For a man to truly honor woman, he has to deal with the issue of pornography in his life. A man who truly honors women, truly honors women, does not look at porn. Wouldn't dare. Now, I understand that this is not just a male struggle. I understand that there's many young women in particular who do struggle with this issue. It's more common than we know. And um, I don't want to heap any shame on you to make your struggle seem not common to man. But for the purposes of this message, I want to address the men. Uh, pornography, by its very nature, exploits women. The production of it exploits women. Many of them are doing it against their will. They're on drugs, have been trafficked so that their handlers can get rich. You train your mind to exploit women, to use them as objects of titillation instead of daughters of, of the Father, the daughters of God, made in the image of God. It dehumanizes women, and it dehumanizes men. And often when I talk to men about pornography, you talk about putting off, right? What you put off is you, you, you take away the access points, you take away the anonymity, you try to change that affection for it, you try to remember God's presence and not be an atheist when you're alone. But part of the putting on, I think for men to have true victory over this area, and I tell them this, and this is true in my life too, is have a great esteem for the worth of women. Cherish them, love them, look up to them, so that when the temptation strikes you, you would say, far be it from me to degrade such objects of beauty and wonder. Right? A worthy man esteems the worth of women. And when somebody truly esteems the worth of women, they will not want to see them exploited in any context. They would, they would push away from that thought. And if that's you, we want to help you. And really, this is the first step. If you want to become a worthy man, and some of you may be convicted right now. I mean, all of us are in process. All of us can become more worthy. But you know what the first step is to become a worthy man? Is to look not only to Boaz, but beyond Boaz, to the worthiest of all men. And that's Jesus Christ. Look how Jesus Christ treated women. How he engaged in the woman at the well. 
how he healed the, the woman who was hemorrhaging for, for, for decades, and then he raised a little girl from the dead. How he allowed women to follow him, and they were so devoted to him that they were at the cross when he died. And while he was even at the cross, he made sure that somebody was looking out for his mother. He was protecting and providing her to the very last hours of his life. But he, he's more than a moral example. He offers transformation. Because on that cross, he took the wrath of, our, uh, wrath of God on behalf of us so that we could be forgiven of our sin, so that we could be changed and transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And when you are changed into the image of Christ, you will become a worthy man. And like Jesus, you will esteem women as people of great worth. So let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for the example of Boaz. And we're super thankful for the um, Boazes you have in this church. And we pray just for the, the men of this church that you will motivate us and inspire us to um, be men who show ourselves worthy. Because in our heart of hearts, we esteem women as you esteem them as beautiful creatures that you have given as a gift for all mankind. I pray for anyone here who perhaps feels beaten up. Lord, I pray that they won't get defensive, but that they will accept this as a work that you're doing in their life, and they will commit themselves to taking the next step, whatever that may be, talking to someone, confessing. But we pray that you will use even this Iron Man as a chance to make worthy men. In Christ's name, amen.